The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. Many Zainichi Koreans still use both Japanese names and Korean names. Particularly, kids who go to Japanese school tend to use Japanese names simply because they don't want to stand out, they don't want to be bullied、uh, because of their ethnicity. But when they enter universities, they tend to change. They tend to become more open and accommodating their own identity. It gets to the core question of what does it mean to be Japanese? If you are born in Japan but not ethnically Japanese, but culturally and linguistically Japanese, does that make you Japanese? These are questions I think Japanese people are really grappling with right now. In this episode, the challenges for ethnic Koreans living in Japan. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Korea is one of Japan's nearest neighbors, and the two countries have been exchanging goods, culture, religion, and at times belligerence for over a thousand years. Both societies like to portray themselves as ethnically homogenous, yet the truth is, as always, more complex. Ethnic Koreans, in fact, have for generations made up a substantial part of Japan's urban landscapes. They blend in with Japanese-sounding names and public appearance, and their integration is such that. To outsiders and even to many Japanese, their other than Japanese ethnicity is virtually imperceptible. Yet the Zainichi Koreans, as they're known, make their home in Japan as a result of historical misfortune. And while many get on with their lives among the Japanese and couldn't imagine living anywhere else, their unique status continues to present challenges to how they fit in. And how they see themselves. To examine the lives of the Zainichi Koreans and the social and personal burdens they face, we're joined in the studio by sociologist, associate professor Nana Uishi, and literary historian Dr. Jonathan Glade, both of Asia Institute. Nana, welcome back to Ear to Asia, and Jonathan, welcome. Well, thank thank you. you. This is a fascinating topic, and I bounced off a few of my friends just a little personal survey to see if anyone knew about Zainichi Koreans, and not one did. So I suspect that most of our listeners are discovering some of this narrative for the very first time. So let's throw the spotlight on who these people actually are. Who are the Zainichi Koreans? Zainichis are Korean residents who have been living in Japan for many generations. Zainichi actually literally means staying in Japan, so it doesn't really mean Koreans per se, like Zainichi itself, but it implies temporary residence. But in reality, most Zainichi Koreans are staying in Japan permanently. So the first generation of Zainichi Koreans arrived in Japan before 1945 under the Japanese colonial rule. There are about two million of them in Japan when the war ended. And most of them did return to Korea, but 650,000 of them stayed in Japan and have families. Many of them do not become Japanese citizens and still keep their Korean passports. And many of their children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren who were born and grew up in Japan also keep their Korean passport and do not apply for Japanese citizenship. Some of them do, though. Recently, I think more younger people are likely to apply for、um, Japanese citizenship for various reasons, but we don't really have the specific data on this, so it's really hard to tell. 
We're going to be talking about citizenship historically because there are different periods, aren't there, where their status was quite different. Right. Early on, they were part of the, of the empire, I guess, the national part of the empire. Then, of course, as you just alluded to, straight after the war, that shifted quite drastically. Right. But today, what is the capacity for Koreans to actually become naturalised Japanese? Probably since about the 1990s, it's been relatively easy a special resident category that most uh, Zainichi Koreans were in to change from that category to naturalized Japanese citizen is not a very difficult process. I think it's, it entails like a criminal background check and connections to North Korea. And other than that, it's a pretty straightforward process. We perhaps should explain that looking to Japan from the outside, they have quite a different system of citizenship, don't they? Because it's more based on family lineage compared to perhaps other countries like the US, where it's a place of birth. Yeah, that's right. The important thing to think about is this particular experience and particular historical heritage that led many to not want to become Japanese citizens. And so because they were not Japanese citizens automatically at birth, those of second and later generations, then it becomes a choice in later cases. And there's a reason why many chose not to become Japanese, even if the process was relatively straightforward later on. No, no, they are a major minority in Japan. There's no doubt about that. But Mm -hmm. what's the actual quantum? How many are there? So there is no official statistics on Zainichis, but we know that 320,000 Korean passport holders who are under the visa called special permanent resident visa, and which is given only to people who were living in Japan before the World War II ended and their descendants. In addition to that, another 360,000 people, Koreans, who came to Japan before the World War II or their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren and who became Japanese citizens, those people who became naturalized. So if we combine them together, then we can estimate that there are probably 700,000 of Zainichis in Japan in total. Yeah, so I think it's important to point out this is one reason why I think this topic is so important in terms of understanding Japan and maybe East Asia more broadly, East Asian society, that notions of ethnic minority or ethnicity may be quite different than an English language context. So if we're talking about Zainichi, once they become Japanese citizens, then the Japanese government no longer has statistics about whether they're ethnically Korean or not. Or the notion of Korean Japanese being Korean Japanese is something that's still quite unfamiliar in Japanese society or maybe not broadly used. So to think of someone as a Japanese citizen but a different ethnicity is quite difficult. And so, yes, there are statistics, but sometimes it's a little hard to pinpoint exact numbers because the Japanese government is not overly concerned with ethnic minorities who are Japanese citizens. Okay, Jonathan, let's trace the historical arc now. When did the first Koreans arrive, the first immigrants, and what drew them there? You know, going back thousands of years, and there's even record of Koreans coming over and having large impact on Japan in 700s, 800s. Some people even argue that Japan was settled via Korea. That's a controversial topic that we won't get into today, but that's a totally different history. And what we're talking about was Zainichi mostly started after Japan officially colonized Korea in 1910. 
And when they annex the Korean yeah, peninsula. Yeah, annex the Korean peninsula, I think is the way that it's uh, usually stated. But basically, it's a formal colonization. There was influence before that, but formal colonization in 1910. There were some Koreans, though, who immigrated a little early than that. Yeah, but very small numbers. Yes. And really, the large numbers started about 1920. And what happened is Korea was actually a settler colony for Japanese people. And a lot of Japanese people started going to Korea and buying up land, and many Korean farmers were displaced, especially from the southern half of the peninsula. I don't know the exact statistics, but I looked at a historical study, and it said that around 40% of Koreans who made their way to Japan said they did so for economic reasons, especially around the 1920s and 30s. And then later on, it, with the war effort during World War II, there was this mobilization movement effort in Japan. And then a lot of Koreans were basically conscripted and brought to Japan to do manual labor. But as Nana pointed out, of the two plus million that ended up in Japan, most went back to Korea. And so all those who were brought in basically by force in the 1940s, they went back. And it's those that were there longer from the 1920s and 30s who had saved up money or built a life in Japan that stayed behind. And I think the The U.S. or the Allied occupation made a rule that you could not take more than 1,000 yen of property back to Korea. So those who had actually built up a life in Japan were not motivated to return because they couldn't take much with them. Now we come to post-war, 1945 and the years following, and some pretty drastic things happen, don't they, Nana, in terms of the status of Zainichi Koreans, uh, because we should emphasize that during that earlier period, they were part of Japan, weren't they? They were citizens during that earlier period after the annexation of the Korean Peninsula, they were part of the empire, if you like. But after World War II, things changed quite drastically. That's right. Under the Japanese colonial rule, Zainichis were categorized as Japanese nationals. So they had various socioeconomic rights. They even had a right to be elected. And in fact, uh, one Zainichi man was elected for Japanese parliament. Twice, actually. And others uh, were elected for local government offices, etc. Um, however, after World War II, they lost most of these rights since they were no longer Japanese colonial subjects or that Japanese nationals. What effect did that have on their everyday life? I'm just thinking that once you lose citizenship, I'm assuming just the normal processes of welfare, access to public service jobs, etc. The door slammed on those sort of things for Koreans in Japan? Exactly, exactly. So they could no longer have access to the national health insurance and national old age pension. They were discriminated against in the labor market. And if they used their Korean name, their job applications were often turned down. And in 1970, actually, a second-generation Zainichi Korean person, Mr. Park Chong-sok, applied for a job at a very big company called Hitachi by using his Japanese name. And he passed the exam and interviews, and he got a job offer. And when Hitachi asked for his family registration document, and he told them that he was actually Korean, and then they canceled the job offer. Mr. Park was very shocked, and he, since he was a permanent resident and he had a right to work in Japan, and he passed exams and everything, right? But because the job offer was cancelled, he decided to sue Hitachi. And his family and many of his Korean friends and Japanese friends um, got together and supported him, and he won. And this case was a major achievement, not only for him, but for all Zainichi Koreans and ethnic minorities in Japan, because the court officially recognized Japanese companies' discriminatory practices against them. 
And of course, discrimination didn't disappear immediately. But after this lawsuit, more opportunities became available for Zainichi and other ethnic minorities. So it was a very positive development. We've painted a picture of uh, Zainichi Koreans being shut out of many aspects of particularly occupational life uh, in Japan. But there was also some degree of surveillance, wasn't there? I'm thinking of the fingerprinting, for example, which is only comparatively recently being stopped in Japan. So the Japanese government was quite keen to keep track of where they were. I think until the 1980s, that fingerprinting was required by law and there was quite a lot of resistance to that. And that's just one of the different sort of laws in place that separated the so-called special resident status from citizens. Obviously, no voting rights couldn't work for the Japanese government. Other certain benefits that were not available to Zainichi Koreans. But I think it's also important to take a step back to what happened after World War II. I mean, we use the term Zainichi, but at the time, they were just Koreans. Anyone who was ethnically Korean throughout the Japanese empire just thought of themselves as Korean. There was no difference. But after 1945, many chose not to go back to Korea And they were labeled as liberated people, but then they were subjected to Japanese laws and in some cases labeled as enemy nationals, which is what the occupation called Japanese people at the time. So the reason why I point that out is there's this sort of back and forth status that starts even in 1945, 1946. And so they're never really totally not citizens. They're subjected to Japanese law, but they're never given the rights of Japanese citizens. So there's kind of this in-between space that they occupy, not totally foreign, not totally Japanese, or not Japanese citizens. And that continues throughout. And it's still an issue going on today that if you decide not to become a Japanese citizen, you still don't get full rights, even if you're fourth generation Zainichi. What drove all that? What elements in Japanese society, and I'm assuming some elements in the US occupation forces, what drove that? This is a topic of my research, so I don't want to get into too much detail because I could really go off the rails. But I would just say Cold War is one big concern, and the Allied occupation, particularly the United States, was concerned with communism. And so a lot of this sort of control and suppression and surveillance of Koreans was due to fear that many Koreans were aligned with the Communist Party or with communism. And so the Japanese government as well was very motivated to kind of surveil and keep Koreans under, you know, their watch or under control. And I guess this is one topic that we were planning to talk about, but uh, there was a Korean educational system set up basically to restore a Korean identity that many Koreans thought had been erased during colonial rule. And that was suppressed in many ways. And even now there are still Korean schools, but they are outside the Japanese education system. They don't have official status within the Japanese education system. So you can see how there's this struggle between trying to have a Korean identity, but not being accepted or totally a part of Japanese society if you do that, right? If you want to become, quote unquote, Japanese as a Japanese citizen, then many Koreans, many Zainichi Koreans would think that you'd have to give up your Korean identity. And that's been a struggle that's been ongoing basically since 1945. Nana, could you just clarify just how Korean would change their name to be more Japanese? This is something we probably don't understand as clearly outside Japan. This sense of identity, the actual name you have, the way it looks in calligraphy too, I guess. How did they do that? And is that the same situation today that most Zainichi Koreans in Japan would have a Japanese name? Yes, 
many Zainichi Koreans still use both names,、um, Japanese names and Korean names. Particularly those kids who go to Japanese school, they tend to use Japanese names simply because they don't want to stand out, they don't want to be bullied、uh, because of their ethnicity and stuff. But I think when they enter universities, they tend to change quite a bit because universities are a lot more diverse. They have international students from Korea and they have different ethnic Japanese. And so I actually realized that when I was teaching in Japan, Quite a few Japanese、um, students, I thought that Japanese students were actually Koreans. And they used their Japanese names in the first year, but the second year and third year, their names were different, or they call themselves Koreans. I realized that they inspired each other in terms of ethnic identity. And in the university in general, I think young people tend to become more open and more. Accommodating their own identity and they change the ways in which they perceive themselves gradually. What you both seem to be describing is a real pull and tug situation. I think you almost used that term yourself a moment ago, Jonathan. What do you analyze as the incentives and the disincentives for Zainichi Koreans within the Japanese society to insert themselves more? Wholeheartedly into that society or hold back from it and keep their Korean identity intact within themselves at least. What are those pulls and tugs all about? Thinking about what motivates an individual to do something, I think you can't think of it as like hiding or concealing one's ethnicity. If you've always used a Japanese name, you only speak Japanese, you go to Japanese schools, then it would actually have to be a very active choice to break out of that. That's the default mode. So, passing is not really an active choice. And this also shows up in a lot of literary works where characters are represented as not even knowing that they're passing. And it's only later, kind of what Nana points out, maybe going to university or later on learning and saying, oh, I have this heritage, I'm, I connect to this, but not really knowing about it in your younger years. And sometimes this is represented as a tragedy, sometimes it's just the reality. But、uh, passing. And using different names, there's a Sume, is what I guess it's called, like the passing name, can actually be the name that one is most comfortable with, the Japanese name. And so sometimes when one is called by their Korean name, they feel very uncomfortable because they're not used to it, or they can't even pronounce it because they only speak Japanese. So I think it's important to point out that a lot of these ideas of ethnicity and identity are not really so clear cut. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark, along with sociologist, Associate Professor Nana Uishi, and literary historian Dr. Jonathan Glade. We're talking about the challenges for ethnic Koreans living and getting along in Japan. Now we come to that other dimension that's just lurking at the table here, and that's the Korean War, of course, and the split between North and South in Korea. How has that shaped and affected? Koreans in Japan. Jonathan? Koreans in Japan historically have liked to see themselves as Koreans, not North Korean, not South Korean, because Korea was just one country when they originally immigrated to Japan or when their grandparents or whomever immigrated to Japan. So the split of the Korean Peninsula was largely opposed. And largely seen as a huge negative by Koreans in Japan. Now, later generations most closely probably identify with South Korea, but at the time, many were very opposed. 
And they particularly saw the United States as having a negative role in that. And so a lot were more closely aligned with North Korea or saw North Korea as the true representative of Korea. But I would say most at the time just saw themselves as Korean and they didn't particularly identify with one nation state. To what extent do Koreans in Japan maintain some sort of cultural ties with Korea? Do they travel as tourists back to South Korea or even some of them go to North Korea? Do they generally sustain some of those cultural ties and and try and keep contact with some fleeting sense of identity? Yeah, I would think so. Um, a lot of my students, Zainichi students um, in Japanese universities, I taught at two universities and in both places, um, a lot of Zainichi students went to Korea as an exchange student and they learned the language and they try to keep very close cultural ties with Korea. And unfortunately, North Korea is not a very easy place to visit for them. But South Koreans, Zainichi South Koreans, they went to South Korea quite a few times, I think. Within that back and forth that we're describing in this conversation, is applying for a Japanese passport, for example, seen as an enormously important step in terms of the Korean dimension to an individual's identity? Is it something that's commented upon, even frowned upon by fellow Koreans if you apply for a Japanese passport? I think for the first generation, second generation point of view, it is. But among third and fourth generations, um, or fifth generation, some of them are, um, don't think it is a big deal anymore because most of them spent their whole lives in Japan. And I think young people tend to understand Even nationalistic ones understand what other Zainichis are doing, and I think they understand everybody has his or her identity. So I don't think citizenship publication is something that is frowned upon by other Zainichis. Yeah, I think it's important here that we don't impose broader understandings on individual choices. So as Nana pointed out, probably the biggest distinction that needs to be made is historical or generational difference. Because of the reasons I mentioned earlier that uh, Koreans were not given a lot of cultural autonomy in the 1940s and 50s, that many felt naturalizing when the option became easier later on in the 60s and 70s and 80s, that it was betraying their own identity. But now, I don't think that's the case. And you can see in the numbers, there are actually probably more naturalized Zainichi than there are those who have not become Japanese citizens. And just to touch on the earlier question about identity and connection to Korea, I think it varies quite a bit individually. And someone like me or Nana, we, in the settings that we work in, we may come across those who are very engaged and actively searching out their Korean identity. But the average Zainichi person or person who has one Zainichi parent, one Japanese parent, they may not really be concerned You know, anecdotally speaking, I've met people like this through friends of friends, and they'll just say, oh, yeah, actually, by the way, I'm Zainichi Korean. And this is like after knowing them for a year, and it's just really not a big deal to them. But then when I was studying Korean in Korea, half of my class was Zainichi. So in those cases, it's like, well, there's so many Zainichi who are intensely interested in Korea, but I think in a way it's kind of confirmation bias, because my opportunities of interacting with the average person who just goes about their daily life, marries a Japanese person, has a job, I would only interact with them on a very limited basis. Whereas if I'm in Korea studying Korean, I have a lot more opportunity to meet with those who are actively searching out a Korean identity. No, no, we've talked about the historical discrimination within employment particularly, and the use of welfare funding and 
ability to be part of the civil service in Japan for Zainichi Koreans. But there are really clear examples, aren't there, of hate speech against these groupings and even protests and uh, people yelling in the street and assaulting and yelling at uh, schools, etc. What are these hate speech incidents about? Who propagates this? I guess what's happening in Japan right now is growing nationalism, just as any other countries in the world recently. And and there are more and more extreme nationalists emerging in Japan as well. And one of the reflections of that movement, nationalistic movement, is the hate speeches against Zainichi Koreans. And even when I was in Japan, I've seen lots of demonstrations and hate speeches. And there's a big organization called Zaitokukai, um, which was established as an anti-Korean organization in 2006. They have 16,000 members, which is quite large. And they claim that the Zainichi Koreans have received too many privileges, including welfare benefits and access to public housing, and which some Japanese, according to what they claim, some Japanese people cannot even get, etc. And they have been demanding that the government cancel all the socioeconomic rights that have been given to Zainichis. So they often organize major demonstrations using hate speeches and demanding Zainichis to go home, etc. It's horrible, horrible languages that they use in the demonstrations. It was really disgusting to see those demonstrations. But the Japanese government has passed the Hate Speech Act in 2016 to deal with the situation. It was good that they passed it because it recognized hate speeches are discriminatory actions and should be removed from our society. However, there is no penal cause, so it is not very effective, unfortunately. But the positive development, though, is that every time when a hate speech demonstration is organized, a so-called counteraction or counter-demonstration is also organized by Japanese people and Korean people and forming a united front. So more and more people are getting involved in this kind of counter-movement against hate speech demonstrations. I think more Japanese people began to feel that they need to protect their friends and neighbors. So this is something that is really emerging quite significantly in recent years. I see it as a positive development. Although, obviously, we definitely need to eliminate these kind of hate demonstrations for sure. Certainly the demonstrations, you probably won't easily eliminate the underlying feelings. But these people who are protesting so vigorously and hatefully against Zainichi Koreans, what's their underlying sense of grievance, if you like? What is that about? Going back to what Nana was talking about, and I, I mean, I can see this happening in the United States, happening in Europe, happening in any place with large immigrant populations, that there's a fear that immigrant populations are taking over, you know, as they would say in the United States, taking our jobs, things like that, and that ethnic minorities become a scapegoat, right? And that, oh, they are not truly Japanese, therefore they should, you know, go back to their country or they should, uh, you know, not receive certain benefits. One reason why I'm so interested in this topic and why I really started my research, I guess, on the topic is because... It gets to the core question of what does it mean to be Japanese? Can you be Japanese if you were born in another country? Or can you be Japanese if you're born in another country and your parents are ethnically Japanese? Can you be Japanese without speaking Japanese? If you were born in Japan but not ethnically Japanese but culturally and uh, 
you know, linguistically Japanese? Does that make you Japanese? These are questions I think Japanese people are really grappling with right now that maybe even 20 years ago when I first visited Japan were not huge issues or not really on the surface. But I think now it's definitely a huge issue that many Japanese people are thinking about. Can we expand that definition of what it means to be Japanese? There's a certain psychology at work here, isn't there, that discrimination brings a certain distortion in the way people feel and think about the other within their society. Do you see this easing over the next couple of generations? You've talked about some of the younger Koreans in the Japanese society. How do you see it playing out? I'm optimistic because I've seen my students who were at the universities growing up in more diverse environment. And they really didn't have a feeling sort of against any ethnic groups in Japan. And they became friends with each other. And、um, I haven't really seen any sort of negative developments, at least at the university levels. So Japan will change quite a bit in the near future because we are going to open up our labor market to a larger number of migrants. So our society will be even more diverse than in the past. I think people will get used to living in a diverse community. As you and I have discussed in another podcast, the plunging population of Japan. So it's slightly ironic, isn't it, that we've got this conversation going on at all about people, many of them have been in Japan for so long. So, how do you see the future, Jonathan? Well, to see the future, I guess I would reflect on my own sort of interaction with Japan over the past 20 years. That、uh, demographically, I think there's been a huge shift, and Nana talked about a lot of those issues, you, you know, labor issues, aging society. All of these things where,、uh, especially the Japanese government, is hugely motivated to bring in people to encourage migration to Japan. And I think we can see those as positives. But at the same time, I don't want to make light of the ongoing issues that people face. And I think if you ask most Zainichi Koreans, they would say there are different issues that they still face in their everyday life. But I would also point out、uh, anecdotally, one of my very good friends、um, in Japan. He is not Zainichi, but his father is African and his mother is Japanese. And he has been contacted by researchers trying to get him to talk about the discrimination that he's faced. And for him personally, he just says, I love living in Japan. I am Japanese. This is how I've grown up. There's nothing else that I could imagine. And he feels kind of、uh, put off by people trying to get him to talk about being discriminated against. So once again, I think. At the individual level, it's really hard to say what one's experience may be, but there are still ongoing concerns. And I'm very, I guess, optimistic, as Nana pointed out, but also concerned to see how these shifting demographics will sort of play out in the future. People see it as a positive, oh, you know, it's globalization, internationalization, but there are very real economic factors at play, and there are still communities and populations that are marginalized. And it may not. Necessarily be Zainichi Koreans, but it may be certain labor groups, groups brought in for labor that are working in jobs that maybe Japanese people don't want to work in. And once again, this is kind of an international phenomenon, not necessarily particular to Japan. Well, it is a fascinating story, isn't it? It's a story of ethnicity, nationalism, identity. And、uh, all the various human feelings that、uh, revolve around all that. Thank you so much to you, Nana and Jonathan, for being with us on Eat to Asia and helping us understand it more deeply. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.
Our guests on Ear to Asia have been Associate Professor Nana Uishi and Dr Jonathan Glade, both of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 26th of March 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.